Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have uh, Jamie Ellis. He's a Gahan endowed professor. He does honeybee research, part of uh, the Extension Laboratory, dealing with entomology, pneumatology. Uh, this is all part of the University of Florida. So uh, I don't know much about them yet, but I'm learning, and we're going to talk about uh, honeybees. So, Jamie, thanks for coming. Hey, Richard, thanks for having me. I really appreciate the invitation to be on the show. Yeah. yeah what, what got you interested in bees however many years ago? Yeah, so that's a good question. So when I was about six or eight years old, I got interested in bees. And my parents, you know, we're not from a beekeeping family. So it took me a little bit of convincing to get my parents to, to get me a colony. And it took about four years, in fact. So around 12 years old, I started keeping bees as a hobby. And I kept bees throughout middle school and high school. And then I went to University of Georgia. I'm from the state of Georgia. And while there, I worked in the bee lab at the University of Georgia, essentially for the type of lab there that I run here at Florida. And it just kind of just got into my soul. I like keeping bees. I like research. And so I kind of put the two together and did a PhD in entomology overseas at Rhodes University in South Africa. And then shortly thereafter, I found myself as a faculty member at the University of Florida where I'm able to run my own bee program. So that's that's a bit of my bee history. Very cool. I mean, what is it that attracted you about bees when you were little? And now what do you study about them that fascinates you? Oh, yeah. You know, the the question about it when I was little, that is it's simple childhood curiosity honestly that's that's the best answer that i can give somewhere around that time i remember someone coming to our school class and talking about bees and beekeeping and handing us a pamphlet i remember seeing a beehive relatively close to the school grounds and maybe a few of those things collectively just worked their way into my mind and it wanted to do it and and now i found myself as as the leader of the university of florida honeybee research and extension laboratory and we have about 25 or so people in the lab at any given time. So we do lots of different things related to bees and beekeeping. We have research programs related to honeybees and beekeeping. We have an extension program where we work specifically with beekeepers around the world to Im- improve beekeeping management practices. And we also have an instructional program here at the University of Florida where we teach multiple courses about bees and beekeeping attended by hundreds and hundreds of students on, on campus and remotely every year so there's there's a lot going on at the university of florida bee lab are honeybees you know widely studied versus like wasps or you know africanized bees or other bees yes so the truth is is that honeybees are probably one of the most studied insects on planet earth that's just me guessing here and that's because of their their beneficial attributes and the fact that man has been interacting with honeybees for thousands of years and so as a result there's research labs in countries all around the world trying to to collectively study honeybees and work on issues related to honeybees and beekeeping and bee health and things like that. In fact, I would argue that, that they are way more studied probably than any other wasp species or any other bee species, and for that matter, many other insect species. And you asked specifically about African honeybees as well. So so African bees are actually a type of honeybee, so, so they would be lumped under honeybees when we consider research 
don't know. Tell me about honeybees. Like, uh, you know, out of all the bees, are they responsible for pollinating a lot of our, you know, our crops in the U.S. and worldwide? Or like, what's what's their role in our lives? So they are responsible for a lot of pollination. So let me let me back up and answer your question fully. So there there are about twenty thousand species of bees on the planet. In North America, wow. we have between four thousand and forty five hundred species of bees. In Florida, where I live, we have almost three hundred and twenty ish species of bees. And the reason I throw that number out there is because of the twenty thousand species of bees on the planet, only nine of them are honeybees. And Eight of those occur exclusively in Asia. Only one of those occurs outside of Asia, and that's the honeybee that most of the world knows. That's the one that's from Europe, the Middle East, and Africa. So in North America, where we are, we don't actually have native honeybee species. These that were here were brought over by Europeans hundreds of years ago. So this bee, this one species, is the predominant managed bee species used to provide pollination services for crops really around the world. With that said, all 19,999 other bee species also play a role in pollination of crops and plants grown in, in the wild. So collectively, bees as a group are incredibly important to habitat sustainability. Uh, and then when you think about the bees like honeybees that are used specifically for agriculture pollination purposes, then you can know a handful of very important species are really critical to ensure our country's food supply and really the food supply around the world. Just to give you a quick estimation, there are some estimates okay. out there that as much as, you know, 20% of the food produced on planet Earth depended on, on the pollination services provided by honeybees specifically, but some other bees Jesus. as well. So they're incredibly important organisms. So is honeybees one species or is honeybees hopefully a, a bunch of species that are very similar? Well, it's, 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 that's an interesting thing to think about. You know, there's, there's nine species specifically on the planet of honeybees. And so, like I said earlier, eight of those occur exclusively in Asia, but this one that occurs outside of Asia occurs in naturally in Europe, the Middle East and Africa. And so when you think about the distribution over these three areas, right, Europe, the Middle, Middle East and Africa, this one species distributed over this huge expanse of land, this huge range of environmental conditions, it has separated into different races or subspecies. So there's European races of this honeybee and African races of this honeybee and so forth. These different races, these different subspecies have different characteristics. And there's somewhere in the neighborhood of 25 to 30 of those, depending on the taxonomist with, with whom you talk. And these, a lot of these are found now in North America and South America and other parts of the world because they've been spread around. So there's only one honeybee species that's used for the vast majority of pollination services, but there's eight others as well. Uh, but, but those are important principally in Asia. Well, the reason I ask is that, you know, I'm, I'm hearing a lot about colony collapse disorder and mites and things like that, that are, you know, whacking our bee population supposedly in the U S. So I wonder in desperation, if you, you know, were able to raise tons of bees over in Africa or Asia and bring them over, could they act as a proxy? Could they pollinate our plants and, and stuff here, or, or are they too different? Yeah, well, that's that's something worth having a great discussion about. But if 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 you think about it from this perspective, I'm, again, I'm going to go back to this one bee that's distributed naturally in Europe, the Middle East, and Africa. The European types of this one species were brought over principally the 1600s, 1700s, and 1800s, and those are the bees that we use in North America. There are 
about 30 or so of these subspecies or races in Europe, the Middle East, and Africa. And all of these would be capable of providing pollination services in the U.S. The problem is, is that some of these subspecies, particularly some of the African subspecies of honeybees, are very defensive. You, you, you mentioned earlier Africanized honeybees. The press likes to call those killer bees. So while a lot of these different types of the same bee species would be really good at providing pollination services, the risk of bringing them over, you know, we might have uh, introduced traits that we don't want, you know, heightened defensiveness. Furthermore, there could be additional diseases and pests that move over. So, so rather than importing new strains or variants of the honeybees that we have now in North America, we feel that there's better strategies that we can do with the honeybees here that we can accomplish improving their health, improving their productivity with the populations we have rather than having to introduce them given the risks associated with, with additional in, introductions of these, these other strains of this one species. So, I mean, you know, you probably know better than most, are bees okay in the U S what's the dynamic? Yeah. So the, you, this, this is something we could talk about for a long time. So I'm, I'm going to narrow it down this way, Richard's great question. So we've all been aware since the mid 2000s, around 2006 or seven, people have been reporting high loss rates of honeybee colonies. In fact, as you know, it's been a major news story over the last 15 years. Every major news outlet's talked about honeybee colony losses. It's, it's incited movements and change all around the world. Almost everyone is aware of issues related to honeybees. When I tell people I'm a, a honeybee professor, they instantly ask me, What's happening to the honeybees? How are their populations and what's killing them? So, so to give you some really brief answers, yes, we have what we consider high gross loss rates every year. That means we have rates that be, of colonies that beekeepers lose that we think are abnormally high. The average beekeeper says he or she loses about 40% of his or her colonies in the United States every year. So if you have 100 colonies, you're going to lose 40 if you match the national average. All right. But the odd thing, Richard, is that over the last 15 years, we've seen a net increase in the number of managed honeybee colonies of 1% a year. Let me explain what we're seeing. What, what happens is people are reporting gross losses, which are big, big numbers. But what they're not reporting are net changes. So let me let me tell you a little story to help kind of explain this. If you keep a hundred colonies in the United States, the, the statistics suggest you're going to lose 40 of them this year, right? Those are your gross losses. So now you've got 60. Okay. But the net numbers say you're going to end the year with 1% more colony than you started with. If you started with a hundred, you're going to end with 101. Somehow you're going to end up with 101 colonies, even though you lost 40. And what what story's not getting out is that with those 60 that remained, beekeepers manage them to grow them and split them. And right now, through these splitting practices, are able to overcompensate for their losses. So they'll have 100 and lose 40. With the 60 that are left, they'll split and recover 41. And so now they have 101 colonies. So that's, if I were to extrapolate that on the national level, that's exactly what's happening. We're gross losing 40% of our colonies, but we're net gaining 1%. That means we actually have more managed honeybees now 
than we did 15 years ago, even though we have these high gross loss. And the reason that is the case is that beekeepers are working as hard as they can to overcompensate for all the things that are happening to manage colonies. Beekeepers are the real heroes in the story. They're splitting colonies. They're growing colonies. They're the ones taking it on the chin, as it were, to, to compensate for these loss rates. And they're doing such a good job at the expense of, you know, of their bottom line, that they're actually keeping those numbers of colonies growing, even though we have these kind of astronomical gross loss rates. And so that's really kind of the best way that I can frame it. Yeah. So what is, what does it mean to split a colony versus grow one? And it's obvious. And then um, what, what percentage of bees are wild, you know, honeybees are wild versus managing colonies. Really good insight there. So let me, let me answer your first question. So to split a colony simply means to take one colony and make it two. So what you do is you will invest in uh, improving the health of a colony. You're controlling its diseases and pests. You're supplementing its nutrition where necessary. You're making sure it has a strong, healthy queen. And you do all of these things. The colony grows to the point that you now can take half of the bees out of it and start a second colony. So you've taken that one colony and made it two. And so that's how beekeepers are recovering their losses because they're splitting a lot. So growing a colony simply means investing in management to make that colony stronger and stronger and stronger. Splitting the colony means taking that strong colony and making it two colonies. And that's what they're working really hard to do. There are no wild honeybees in North America. Things can only be wild where they are native. And since there are no native honeybees in North America, there are no wild honeybees. The honeybees that live in the wild are feral honeybees, kind of the same way we think about feral hogs, right? That at one point were domesticated and maybe escaped domestication. So unfortunately, the best data we have relate to managed colonies. We know in the U.S. we keep around two and a half or so million managed honeybee colonies, but there are no good data on the actual number of feral colonies that we have out there in the wild. My guess, and this is strictly a guess, and I kind of reserve the right to be wrong, my guess is that we have probably that many um, feral colonies as well. But given that no one is keeping population estimations of the feral population across the U.S., it's, it's really difficult to provide a really detailed, accurate answer. But I do know in the U.S., we manage somewhere in the neighborhood of two and a half, 2.7 million colonies on a yearly basis. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Well, I'm sure there's people that compare rural colonies to managed ones. And if so, what's the difference? Are you seeing like epigenetic differences or like how different are the bees? Or are they absolutely, different? absolutely. So there are differences. There are a couple of scientists I can think of around the U.S. who, in fact, do follow small populations of feral bees. And, and unfortunately, it's only a few scientists in a few pockets, which is why we don't have a good estimate of the actual population of feral colonies. But what they will notice and uh, in, in publishing their research report is these feral populations, especially if they're somewhat isolated. In other words, there's no managed colonies around them. These feral populations, a lot of them are developing some resistance and tolerance to the diseases and pests that we see in our managed population. And, and the reason for that's quite simple. In the managed 
population, we manage the diseases and pests. So the bees aren't necessarily um, adapting to the pressures that these diseases and pests put on them. But in the feral population, no one's managing those bees. They're left to survive on their own or die. And so through natural selection and through the change over time, there is some evidence that some populations of feral colonies are starting to develop resistance to some of the diseases and pests we have. And so that probably brings maybe a next question from you that I'll, that I'll try to answer in advance or at least a statement that I'll make. It's possible that the answer to some of the issues that we're seeing in our managed population might already be present in the feral population, which, of course, is why we should study the feral population to see how they've coped and survived. To just give you a brief example, Varroa, this mite that gets on the outside of the bee, is probably the most significant killer of honeybees on planet Earth. You know, So this mite is managed heavily by beekeepers. And when this mite was introduced into the U.S., it all but wiped out the feral population because our bees were so susceptible to it that when this mite came, the feral bees couldn't survive. But that's the key is that some did survive. Very small numbers, but some did. And there's some evidence that those um, developed resistance mechanisms to where they're able to at least in part survive some of the stress put on them by Varroa. So in the absence of management, we might have some Varroa tolerant population starting to develop in the feral population. So I, I think yeah, why don't people look for them and breed them in? <laughs> well, people are looking for them. That's that's the key is there's a few scientists who are starting to go out on a limb and look at these feral populations. But that key that you just said right there at the end and breed them in. There's a huge contingency of science. I say a huge contingency, a relatively large contingency of scientists around the world who are starting to work on breeding the managed population. They've identified traits that they believe confer resistance to Varroa and perhaps some other things. And they're breeding bees similar to how cattle is bred or how corn is bred or how chickens or poultry, you know, et cetera. We, we use similar strategies to select for strains, managed strains that might have disease or pest tolerance. So to, to make a long answer to your question short, there are scientists who are looking at these traits that these feral bees might have and likewise, scientists who are trying to work with the managed population and breed some of these traits into the managed bees, just as you suggest. So what are the different ways you can raise a colony? I guess, you know, beekeepers raise them for max honey production. But what if you you raise one and your goal is just overall health or growth of the colony or I mean, yeah, like how so, many different ways can you raise mm-hmm. a colony and what will it look like when you do it different ways? Yeah. So th- there I'm going to, I'm going to answer your questions kind of two different ways. The first way is why do beekeepers keep bees? Um, if, if you think about it from a, from a purely commercial standpoint, the ways that beekeep, that bees can make money for beekeepers, number one is honey production. As you, as you note, bees can collect nectar. Honeybees can collect nectar from flowers and convert it to honey. And honey is what we're all, you know, with which we're familiar with and, and we, we eat it and a lot of people enjoy it, right? But some people raise bees for the purpose of providing pollination services for pollinating crops. To give you an example, almonds in California need about 1.7 million of the 2.7 million colonies in North America to provide pollination services to ensure that those almond trees set adequate numbers of almond nuts. 
And so the almond growers pay beekeepers a fee to place their bees out on these groves while the almonds are in bloom. And so some beekeepers produce colonies for the purpose of providing these pollination services. And in return, they get paid per crop a fixed price. So, for example, almond grower might pay $200 a colony for a beekeeper to put their colony on almonds. Then they might leave almonds after almonds are not in bloom, and they might move to blueberries, which might pay $75 a crop. Or they might move to watermelons or cantaloupe or squash or cucumber and, and so forth. So pollination is big business in the beekeeping world. So honey production and pollination. Some beekeepers grow colonies for the purpose of selling colonies, right? The rest of us have to purchase our colonies from somewhere so we can purchase colonies from beekeepers whose job it is to produce more colonies. Some beekeepers are specialized in the production and sale of queens. These, These individual bees who head the colonies and and lay all the eggs and produce all the worker bees in those colonies. So there's a huge business for the selection and production of queens for the rest of us to have an outlet from which we can buy queens and use to requeen our colonies. Some beekeepers keep bees for the purpose of producing packages. You literally can buy a screened box of three pounds of honeybees. If you want to start a new hive, you buy the empty equipment, you build it, then you order your bees and your three pounds of bees come in a screen box in the mail. And there's someone whose job it is to make that screened package of bees. So honey production, pollination, the production and sale of more bees. And so all of these require different management strategies to get the colonies ready to either produce honey or pollinate crops or produce more queens, or use to produce package, or grow to split to sell more colonies to other beekeepers. That's really interesting. I also thought, too, like, if I'm raising pollinator bees, and they go, you know, they go pollinate almonds, and then I rotate them to blueberries or whatever it is, the same bees that are pollinating almonds, if they only pollinate almonds in a given season, they would become, I would think, very different from ones that do a multitude of different crops. So I wonder if there's any thought on the order in which they pollinate things, or that just comes from, you know, growth periods and what happens to the bees? How do they change as they pollinate different things? Yeah, that's principally dictated, just like you said, by growth period. And the reason I bring up almonds, because of all the crops in the United States that's dependent on honeybees, almonds probably the most dependent of all the crops. And the other catch with almonds is it blooms earlier than almost any other honeybee dependent crop in the U.S. And so as a result, they have the greatest demand for honeybees, Number one, at the earliest time of year. Number two, if you, all, we, all the bee business folks say that if you if you put your ear to the ground in January of every year, you can hear a sucking sound coming from California, sucking all the managed bees out that direction. Because in late January and February is when almonds are in bloom. And again, 60% of the nation's managed honeybees go there every year just to provide that crop pollination and then from there they fan out around the rest of the country largely following whatever bloom is happening at that time and so i've been told the average colony that's used for pollination services usually provides pollination services to four to five different crops a year so they may do almonds in california in february they may come to florida to do blueberries in march then go up to maine to do blueberries in april then come back to Georgia to do watermelons and and May and and you, and you just get this pattern. So so you're absolutely right. It's dependent largely on on when the bloom is and what crops are coming in 
or going out of season at given times of the year. So what would it look like if someone um, examined bees before they pollinate anything? And then what do they look like after it's just almonds? And then the next one, the next one, the next one, like what's different about them physically, genetically? Absolutely. So people are looking at that because one of the concerns that people had when we started having these high gross loss rates is that the concern is maybe it's just management, right? You're throwing bees on a truck and you're trucking them around the country and they're starting here and they're spending six weeks there pollinating that crop and then they move on and spend six weeks pollinating that crop and so forth. So maybe it's just stress. And so some people have been looking at movement stress and they've been looking at how bees might change over time. But the truth is, is that the adult worker honeybee lifespan is only about six weeks. And so the bees that are providing pollination services on almonds will be mostly dead and, and, and replaced by bees that are providing pollination services on the next crop. So there's, there's not a whole lot of overlap between populations. If you think about it, if bees are constantly turning over and they only survive about six weeks, by the time you get to that next crop and establish, you, you've really got like a whole new assortment of bees in that colony than you did just six weeks ago when you were in California pollinating almonds. But some of the concerns that people have as you move from crop to crop to crop deal with nutrition, right? Honeybees are generalist pollinators. And so if you leave them alone, they're going to pollinate, you know, a wide variety of species. But if you move them to almonds, that's all that's there. And then when you move them to blueberries, that's all that's there. And when you move them to watermelons, that's all that's there. So some have suggested maybe this is just nutritional stress on the bees, and which would, of course, affect physiology and all the things that you mentioned. Some people also mention, you know, pesticide exposure or, again, this idea that you're moving bees around on a truck all the time. Maybe that's detrimental. So, so people are, in fact, looking at how these management systems, this pollination system might impact bees throughout the year. Well, even though the bees only live for six weeks, each night they come back to the hive. So whatever they're, whatever they touch or ingest or are exposed to, they come back and bring that back to the hive. So I would think the hive would still change over the six weeks that a particular set of you know workers are out there, even though they're producing new ones. And that change would probably inform how the new ones are made. I don't know. I don't wonder if anyone studied that. Yeah, so people are looking at that. The key is, is that honeybees are remarkably tied to resource availability and season. And so if you think about it, if, if, if you just leave honeybees in the backyard and forget crop pollination services for a moment, the colony is really small at its smallest, in fact, around January and February, right? It's coming out of winter. There's not been a lot of production of new bees and that's, that's that. And then in most places in temperate climates, you know, March will start off that bloom and then April it will get big and May and June, you've got peak bloom. And then after June, you know, July, August, September, you've got uh, lessening bloom, October, November, you've got hardly any bloom and then December starts winter. And so in most regions of the country, you're going to get peak colony populations between March and June of every year. And the vast majority of bee pollinated crops, the bee dependent crops peak in those same very, the very same months from March to June. So naturally you get peaking colony populations, you get an abundance of pollen, you get a heavy investment in brood production during those times of the year anyway. But there's no doubt that there would be some physiological impacts depending on what pollen source they were utilizing during certain times, et cetera. So, so there are people absolutely studying these things. Those are, those are good insight on your part. 
more helpful to think of them as one organism or as different phenotypes of the same organism? Like, I don't know how much interdependence is there, how much autonomy is there in a bee colony. It's weird. It's like a distributed organism. Well, we, we have a term for that, but let me, let me start from the beginning. The vast majority of those 20,000 bee species that I've mentioned to you are in fact solitary. And so you get mostly bees that live alone all the way up to social bees, like what you see with honeybees, bumblebees, and things like that. Now, by the time you get to the honeybee colony, the investment is no longer in the individual bee. The investment is in the colony. And in entomology, we have a term for this. We call the honeybee colony a superorganism. The prefix super, in this case, doesn't mean great, you know, a fantastic super-duper organism. The prefix super actually means a above. So a superorganism is a level of organization above that of just the organism. The organism is the bee. The superorganism is the colony. So the colony functions as a beast. That's what's important to honeybees. So, so as, as entomologists, we le- look at the honeybee colony, yes, as a collection of individuals, but, but as an individual itself. And Richard, I could go on for days about what this means philosophically. But if you think about our own U.S. motto, E pluribus unum, out of many, one, that is the honeybee colony. Out of many individuals, you get one organism the superorganism and that superorganism can do way more than the individual can do alone it has its own reproductive system it has its own this and that and the other and absolutely um there there's a fascinating science associated with looking at colony level attributes that that transcend those of individual bees the best way to think about it is a honeybee colony is more than the simple sum of its parts. When you squeeze two honeybees together, you have two honeybees. When you squeeze three honeybees together, you have three honeybees. But when you squeeze a thousand together, you start to get these emergent properties that we see only in the colony. And and it's very poetic. It's very beautiful to think about. And it's, it's a stunning, it's a stunning, uh, uh, um, miracle of science. Yeah. It's just, it's similar to people. You know, we've got basketball players and congressmen and, laborers and you know mothers and all kinds of stuff we're not as phenotypic well i guess maybe we are i don't know we're not as phenotypically diverse as bees maybe not as specialized but similar yeah well it's funny because when i have this discussion with my graduate students i'm like hey that's the honeybee colony super but humans are much the same way none of us for the vast majority of us none of us this is a generalization of course but but most of us do not do everything it takes to survive i'm, I'm sitting here talking to you on a microphone through my computer. I neither created this microphone nor my computer, neither did I develop the Wi-Fi system that my computer is using to broadcast this to you. So it took a lot of us to move mankind, the beast forward. And so that, you know, there's diversity in us. It's just what the United States is founded, right? E pluribus, you know, out of, out of the many, out of the diversity, out of all of these tasks and behaviors and races and genders and identities and religions out of many one. And that, that's the story of the honeybee colony. Yeah. I would guess I was going to ask you, like, if someone's looked at the microbiome of the different bee types, the worker versus the queen versus the drones, et cetera. And it's probably like people, 
you know, you'd see a different microbiome and what's healthy for each of them is different. And I just wonder if anyone's looked at that. The, the world of honeybee microbiome research is absolutely exploding right now. There, there's a lot of labs working on it. My lab doesn't work on it specifically, but there's a lot of labs where the, the lead scientists and their graduate students and postdocs are looking at what occurs in the honeybee microbiome, how important it is to honeybees and how it's different between different bee stocks, different areas, and even different bees. So absolutely all of those things and more are being investigated right now. It's a very hot topic. If you go to a standard uh, research meeting on honeybees and beekeeping, you're going to hear uh, a lot of scientists talking about the importance of the honeybee microbiome to the overall health of honeybees. I was going to make a joke earlier. If you talk to a beekeeper that doesn't want to answer questions, they just say none of your business. Yeah, you know, I've I've discovered in my time of being around bees, which now has been about 30 some odd years, that there's about a trillion bee jokes. <laughs> and so a lot of people slide in a lot of puns with bees, but but that's good. I appreciate that. Yeah, very cool. So what what is your research about? I've been asking my own questions, but what are you focused on? Yeah, so my team and I have some pretty diverse interests. That's one of the beauties of studying honeybees. But but broadly speaking, we have three general categories of research. Honeybee husbandry, which is all of our research related to keeping bees, right? Our beekeeping research. And within that, we, we do nutrition work and controlling bee diseases and pests. We look at the impacts of pesticides on bees. It's essentially our research associated with improving the management and health of bee colonies. We have a second category where we're kind of slowly beginning to branch out into this category. I call it honeybee ecology and conservation, kind of this long-term goal of understanding more about just how honeybees function as colonies, what what are their critical needs as an organism, and, and maybe 10, 15 years down the road, how to develop conservation programs for the more critically listed honeybee uh, populations. And then the third area that we spent a lot more time in in the past that we do maybe less of now because of of the way things are structured at UF at the moment, but we invested heavily for a while in integrated crop pollination where we were looking at the contributions of honeybees and other bee pollinators to the crop pollination systems here in Florida and beyond. And so at any given time, we might have 20 to 30 research projects scattered across those three larger research areas and yeah it's it's really fun it's we we even today i know podcasts are kind of timeless and to put a date stamp on it but you know as we record this in early december 2020 even today we had a lab meeting where i was able to talk to my postdocs and students and colleagues about all the stuff that they were up to and it's really fun to hear them talk about their very diverse interests for example in honeybee husbandry we're trying to develop new ways to control this mite that I referred to earlier, Varroa. So how can we better control it? How can we give tools to beekeepers to address this better? So it's just, it's things like that that are really exciting to me in, in the honeybee research world and that we're fortunate to be able to do at the University of Florida. What aspect of bees, whether you could figure it out yet or not, just fascinates you? I know probably the whole thing does, but what, what particular <laughs> yeah. items really do you want to figure out? But it may take you months, years, decades yeah, so there's, as you mentioned, there's so much about honeybees that interests me, right? I've, I've been doing this as, as a hobby, as a beekeeper since I was young, and now I do it as professional. I tell you, every time I go to a research meeting and hear someone talk about something recent that they found, I'm like, what? Honeybees do that too? That's amazing. Some of the things that I'd really like to be able to give to our beekeepers is just better quality management strategies to control varroa. This might as well as some of the viruses that it transmits. Um, on a more holistic level, 
I am very keen to determine what the actual status of wild honeybee colonies is where honeybees are native. We just know so little about their populations and their conservation need. I know that, you know, in Africa, for example, where honey, one of the places honeybees are native, they're all over the place. So when people talk about honeybee colony losses, I happen to believe that many of the answers that we, that we need in our industry are buried in the gene pools of honeybees scattered across that beautiful continent of Africa. And so one of my lasting contributions that I'd love to make is, is a conservation of the diversity of honeybees across the world, as well as pointing people towards these as a resource for solving some of the issues that we have in our own managed population. For a moment, I thought about, you know, people bringing bees out to pollinate fields. And I've heard, I guess, some sometimes bees have been stolen. So I, I don't know why this is like a totally different direction. But has anyone developed like a tracker that you'd, you know, clip into or integrate into the, the trays so that if a bee, you know, colony gets stolen, you could track where it goes like Lojack? Well, I will, I will tell you, there are people who are working on technological advances in the bee world, one of which is a tracker. You raise an interesting point. If you think about it, if honeybee colony loss rates are pretty high, right? These 40% gross loss rates. So there's a lot of beekeepers who are losing lots of bees every year. But on the other hand, the demand for pollination or prices of honey, et cetera, might be high. There's some under those two conflicting pressures, right? Losing bees as well as needing bees have resorted to theft. So theft is a reality in the industry. And so people are looking at doing uh, trackers and things like that to prevent theft. But I would theft, but I would say it's not as widespread in our industry as it needs to be. We we tend to be uh, an industry that is technologically behind a lot of the other agriculture industries and and theft monitoring, the use of distance monitoring technologies to look at colony health and productivity. All of these things are things that are, I feel, about to explode in our industry. You know, I think I hear rumblings of all these labs who are engaged in, in technology research, but but I would say surprisingly, it's not as widespread and adopted as I think it will be over the next 50 years. And And theft of colonies is just one motivator for starting to use technology and beekeeping. There's, there's plenty of other reasons that we would want to use these types of uh, technologies to improve honeybee health and productivity. Yeah. And of the 40% losses every year, what is that composed of? Like what's the main, what are the sources of the loss? If you poll beekeepers about what are the principal stressors that their bee colonies face, they mention varroa and the th- and the diseases that varroa carry. So just let me pause on varroa for a second. To the naked eye, varroa is very small. I mean, if I were to show you a varroa or show your listeners a varroa, it's a teeny tiny mite. But compared to the size of its host, the bee, it is one of the largest parasites known on planet Earth. It would be like you carrying a softball to volleyball-sized tick on your body. So this mite gets on the outside of the bee, feeds on bee fat bodies that has a lot of downstream impact, and it also transmits viruses to bees. Just just collectively, it is a bad, 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 bad thing. And so beekeepers report this as a significant stressor. They also report nutrition as an important stressor of colonies. Inadequate nutrition, inadequate forage, uh, loss of uh, carbohydrates in the form of honey, all of these things kind of collectively impacting colony health. They also note queen quality. There's one queen responsible for the production of all the bees in that hive. And as, as, as she dies, you know, bees have to requeen or, or as there, as she carries detrimental or deleterious traits, it can impact the colony negatively. So beekeepers mention 
queen related issues. They also mention other diseases and pests that our bees succumb to. They mention management stressors and pesticides and other things as, as well, including climate effects, right? And so what tends to show up in the top three to five stressors every year, varroa and the things they carry, nutrition, queens, climate impacts, as well as uh, some management related stuff. And then some of these secondary stressors might include some of these other diseases and pests, perhaps pesticides, perhaps some other management related things, et cetera. So there's, there's a lot of things. I mean, beekeeping's a type of livestock farming. And so in as much as cows can get nutritional issues or breeding issues or weather issues or forage issues or diseases and pests, we, we face many of the same issues with honeybees. If someone wants to keep bees, you know, in their backyard, do states need permits? Like, you know, what will the bees do for the person? Is it just nice to have them? Or like, you know, would you recommend people even do that? So yeah, a lot of people listening to your podcast might get interested in keeping bees. And wherever I go talk about bees, people just really seem to gravitate towards it. So I would say the vast majority of people can explore keeping bees. Now, there are people who are allergic to honeybees and they shouldn't consider keeping honeybees. But if they're not allergic and they don't live in an area that would otherwise prohibit it, you know, an apartment complex or, or a high rise building, you know, you can consider doing it. And there's tons of resources about bees and beekeeping out there. My own lab has a resource at UF, University of Florida, ufhoneybee.com. So www.ufhoneybee.com. And we list a lot of resources on how to get started in bees and beekeeping. As you might guess, beekeepers are remarkably organized individuals. Every state in the U.S. has a state beekeepers association. Within that state, there are multiple regional associations. Within Florida alone, there's nearly 40 local bee clubs. So most of your listeners might be within an hour to a two-hour drive of a local bee club that meets monthly. There's regional bee clubs, national bee clubs, international bee clubs, and all of these places provide great resources to beekeepers. And and then specifically, you ask, why would a person keep bees? Well, when I kept bees as a kid, it was just youthful curiosity. But the benefit is I produced honey and could sell the honey, et cetera. A lot of people keep bees in their backyard just because they're gardeners and they want to have bees to pollinate their crops. A lot of people keep bees just because of the fascination associated with a honeybee colony. And all of those reasons and many more are good reasons for keeping honeybees. And can you uh, start them at any time of the year or do you have to start them in spring? And will they live through the winter or do you have to uh, provide like a shielded, warmed area for them? One of the beauties about honeybees is that they're perennial. They just last forever if if you're managing them appropriately that's that's the good news the bad news is there are kind of times of the year that are better to start than others while you can purchase colonies nearly throughout the year a brand new beekeeper is going to have the most luck if they start around march or april that's because that is immediately before the major nectar flow and colonies grow fast and do well and require the least amount of management during that time with that said, you know, if you start bees in summer, or you purchase colonies in summer or fall or winter, you know, it's 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 many seasons before they're productive. You know, you've got to get to the next spring before they're productive. And, and there's just unique management strategies associated with keeping bees those times of the year. So I always recommend people start as early in spring as possible. The, if you're managing them appropriately, like I said, they should survive throughout winter. There are strategies that you can use to keep those bees alive during winter. 
And truthfully speaking, another benefit of keep starting colonies in spring is that's when most colonies are available for purchase. It's harder to purchase bees in late summer and fall and winter. So spring is just a good time to consider it. And the good news is many, if not most, local bee clubs and state bee clubs scattered around the U.S., will be usually having beginner short courses around that time. So not only are the bees available, but the training's available to get started at that time of year as well. Oh, very cool. We've got a lot of information there. So uh, tell me again for listeners, what are some, some resources for them from here? Like what's your podcast and Absolutely where else can they go? Absolutely be happy to. So our lab's website is www.uf for University of Florida, honeybee.com. That's www.ufhoneybee.com. We have a very active Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook uh, series of accounts. You can find us in Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at UF Honeybee Lab. And, of course, we have a podcast like you've mentioned, Two Bees and a Podcast. We started that this year in 2020. It is remarkably popular. It's taken off. We're excited about it. And, again, it's Two Bees in a Podcast. So all of those are really good ways to see what we're up to in my lab, as well as find great resources about honeybees and beekeeping. Excellent. Jamie, thanks for coming and sharing all your knowledge. It's been great. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.